welcome to Behind the Soundcheck, a podcast dedicated to bring you all of the stories from behind the scenes of the Aussie music industry. I'm Tiana. I'm so glad you could join me today. So far in this series, we've had a bit of a peek into different aspects of the music industry, including touring, videography, publicity, recording, and marketing, with some pretty killer guests in previous episodes. But today, it's a different change of pace for episode six, Brains, Fame, and Musical Feels. Today, I am joined by a clinical psychologist, a huge metalhead, and as a bonus fact, I'm pretty sure I've known her since I was approximately 13. Dr. Tanya McMahon specializes in behavioral addictions, amongst many other things. And for a fun side note, Tanya also just busted out an official TED talk at QUT. But when she's not changing lives, you'll find her deep in the mosh or belting out some songs in her kitchen. Yep, Tanya is also a singer, and as I mentioned earlier, a massive metalhead as well. And for a bit of backstory today, Tanya and I spent some of our teenage years hanging backstage at musical rehearsals, writing angsty high school drama plays, and devouring any music we could get our hands on. And in a twist of fate, we recently reconnected by chance through a love of heavy music. So today, it's a nice blend of nostalgia and insight as we focus in on music, emotion, and the psychology of fandom. Here we go. Hello, and welcome, Dr. Tanya McMahon. I have to admit, today is a bit of a pinch me moment to be chatting to you. I wonder what our teenage selves would tell each other if we told them we would be having this chat in our 30s. I know, right? Uh, It's kind of mind-blowing. And thank you so much for joining me on Behind the Soundcheck. You are, of course, a bit of an expert on a lot of topics. You're a psychologist, a researcher, educator, and a self-described part-time nerd, which, as a side note, same. I think my glasses are a dead giveaway for that. (laughs) But in all seriousness, your work is fascinating. And what I love most is that you balance such a hectic career with such a hectic and stupendous love of music. And you're a singer yourself. So there's a lot there. Where to start? But actually, we'll start here. Where did your love of music stem from? And what led you into these heavier genres that you adore today? Oh, gosh, going music. I mean, it goes back to so far back into my life. Like, I could, as early as age like six, seven, I was taking music lessons. So I was obviously very, very fortunate to be able to take music lessons. Um, so music was a big part of my life from early on playing piano for a little bit and then flute. And then I suppose having the fortune of being at a school where I could just dive into as many musical things as I wanted to. So I did musical and I did vocal group and show choir and all, all the choirs. As as you remember, I have very many fond memories of us uh, in enjoying those things together. And so I think it kind of just followed me out of school like that, that it was just such an important part of my well-being and self-care. I think it kept me sane all through high school, actually. Yeah, I just wanted to continue it in some way beyond that. Um, So obviously I kept listening to music out of school and kept up with lessons. So I kept up my singing outside of school um, just because because of the self-care and the well-being factor. Like it just, I just got so much enjoyment out of it that it was just a no, it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't a decision I had to really make. But the heaviest stuff, I don't know, that kind of happened by accident. I dabbled I suppose um in I guess heavier rock genres towards the end of high school I think friends got me into like Muse and um I think some other friends got me into Marilyn Manson and I always really kind of enjoyed that but when I was in second year uni yeah second year undergrad uni 
Um, the guy I was dating at the time was massively into power and symphonic metal and basically kind of introduced me to the genre. And it was just like something clicked in my brain. Like when I heard it for the first time, it was just like, it's just like meeting your musical soulmate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And I just had never heard anything that connected with, you know, uh, connected with me as much as that. And it was just sort of a journey after that. As soon as I had sort of been exposed to that genre, then I kind of went on my own journey exploring other genres. And then it just sort of, I thought it might've been a phase at the time. I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, this, <laughs> this heavy stuff, but no, it was just this life, you know, um, lifelong journey that's still going really. Mm. And I like what you said about the well-being thing, because I think for a lot of people, it gives a balance, but for your situation in particular, your day-to-day life is obviously worlds apart from standing in the front row of a mosh at a heavy metal show. Yeah. Uh, with yeah. regards to your profession, what series of events led you into psychology? That's a harder one to answer. I guess a bit of just chance. I remember trying to figure out what I wanted to put down for my QTAC preferences way back when. And I actually put a whole bunch of random ones down. Like I think I was going to do digital graphics design, something like that, because it sounded cool, animation or something like that. But psychology was another one that I I didn't have a particular instant attraction to it. It wasn't like, yes, this is you know what I have to do with my life and what I want to do with my life. But it just was something that appealed to me. I liked the sound of it. The subject seemed really interesting. I didn't really know what I was going to be from doing the four-year undergrad degree, but I thought, you know what, I, I like the subject content, so I might as well do something that I like. And then once I got into the course and started doing it, then that's when it really clicked for me that it fascinated me and I was really interested by it. I loved the assignments. I loved everything. And so I thought, okay, this is definitely, I picked the right thing. And then after that, it took me a while to figure out that I wanted to actually practice as a psychologist. So I I went into research for a little bit, but um, ended up doing the the Lifeline um, telephone counselling course. And I was a lifeline, a volunteer telephone counsellor for a little bit and just enjoyed that so much that it it kind of sealed the deal for me as a a decision about what I wanted to do with my psychology, essentially practice. Mm. Um, And then the the rest of that is history. I'm so stoked to hear that you kept your music practice along the way as well. And obviously, while you were developing your professional career, your musical lust was also burgeoning at the same time into probably where you were meant to be on both parts. And music obviously is such a huge factor for a lot of people's lives and also for the psychology side of things. It also has so many implications. In a chat I'm having for this series with another guest, we're touching on the use of music in everyday life. But what I would really love to dive into you a bit more today is more of the science behind music and in particular to begin with kind of the correlation between music and emotions or how we can kind of regulate our emotions through music. I mean, it's no secret we can significantly affect and adjust our emotions. I mean, I think back to us binging on Radiohead in high school and how that would just lead into this cycle of exquisite teenage melancholy. But because I am talking to a psychologist today from a scientific perspective, why does music so powerfully affect our emotions going beyond just the obvious lyrical chordal or instrumental triggers? 
Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Like I, I can totally identify with that as well. You know, my <laughs> connecting with my teenage angst <laughs> with Muse and Radiohead all through high school. I think that's what actually kept me sane. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this, obviously because of my own interest in music and the own, my own um, emotions that uh, music kind of elicits. And I think there's actually a lot of reasons that it elicits um, emotions for people some of which we kind of understand and some of which, which we just have no idea about yet. I know there's some decent evidence that part of it's instinctual, mm. that for some reason we we just react instinctually um, to, to music and that's seen across different cultures such that, you know, different styles of music or different patterns, sound patterns kind of elicit the same reaction. So I know, for example, um, say lullabies, even though each culture might have their own style of lullabies and different sounding lullabies, they all have the same kinds of patterns that are quite soothing and calming. Mm. Um, so like, you know, you know, soft and slow, um, tempos and things like that. So there's definitely evidence that there's, that there's something really built inside us that, that reacts instinctually to music. Some of the stuff I have read talks about it being linked to like the fear response. So the, the amygdala deep in our brain, that's sort of our, you know, our fear response, our fight or flight system that for some reason music activates that but then potentially deactivates it really quickly, you know, so it kind of sends a signal that there's danger but then immediately um, tells us, oh, actually, no, everything's fine. We have no idea why that's the case at the moment but there's some evidence that, yeah, it kind of activates and deactivates our, our fear system which is potentially the reason we get chills and goosebumps from, you know, listening to a really, really moving piece of music. So there's these things that we that we know that we see, but we don't really know why they're there. We don't really know how they work exactly. Um, it's been, I think, the thing we do know is it's been really difficult to do research on music and emotion because people do have such different responses to to music. So I guess there's the yeah the instinctual side of it, but we also know that that personal experience is really strongly linked to the different emotions that we feel from music as well. And I think that's probably the stuff that you were speaking to before about that nostalgic feeling that, you know, if something um, we had really positive experience or negative as well, you know, um, earlier in our life that was paired up with certain music that that music will then kind of arouse those same emotions later on in life. It will be kind of a, a an emotional memory in a way. It is quite, it's amazing. There are some songs I mean, I know technically time travel isn't a thing right now, but there are songs I feel like it just drags me like a wormhole or someone just reaches out and drags me back to that exact moment when I first listen to that song or when I have a really deep connection and a memory of listening to that song. And it's wild. It's just like plunges you through into that moment temporarily. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's really like it really takes you back there it's like a, it's almost like an emotional muscle memory that a certain song can transport you back back in time and i think the other thing that that's interesting is not not just the emotions that kind of music brings up but also the emotions that we try to change through music if that makes sense mm. um so the emotions that we try to say process by listening to music but yeah no it's it's really no secret in the the literature, the research literature anyway, that, you know, we tend to be drawn to music that reflects or captures our emotions and what we're feeling. 
um, and helps us to to change it and, pr- and improve it. I mean, a really obvious one here is, you know, sadness. You know, when we're really sad, most of us won't go and listen to something really upbeat and happy. Some of us might, but a lot of us really love a sad song to really help us fully experience that sadness and come out the other side of it feeling a bit more, um, um, a bit more positive and a bit more, a bit lighter. So um, I think that's, that's a really, you know, obvious one that a lot of people can identify with, but there's also some evidence that it's not just say sadness that we do that for. There's some really interesting research on how um, music can help us actually process and improve our you know, anger and, and sort of the bigger, heavier emotions with really more intense and extreme music. Um, and I find that research really interesting because music like heavy metal and I guess extreme music and more intense music t- typically gets a pretty bad rap. You know, I'm sure you can um, bring to mind horrible violent acts that are depicted in the media. And if the the perpetrators, uh, you know, like a heavy metal fan, they'll always draw that link. They'll always say, mm. oh, you know, they were really into their heavy metal subtly and sometimes not so subtly suggesting that that was a, a contributing factor, you know, that made them angry, it made them violent. Mm. Um, and actually there's some really good research showing that it's actually n- not the case at all. It's actually quite the opposite. There's this really, really um, interesting study that came out of out of UQ, actually, you know, right out of Brisbane, where they got a bunch of heavy metal fans. They made them angry. So <laughs> they, <laughs> they poked the bears. No, actually, what they did was um, they used a really well-validated um, interview interview process where they, you know, get people to tell a story about something that made them angry. Um, it's really effective. It makes people feel anger. It makes them angry. Mm. Um, but then what they did was they then measured their their positive and negative emotions and their heart rate um, also because heart rates are a really good indicator of how kind of uh, physiologically aroused we are. So, um, you know, kind of how, how we're going physically, not just emotionally. Um, and, you know, really effectively, they showed that the, you know, the negative emotions and their, their heart rate increased pretty well after, mm. after they made them angry. Um, and then they made them either, so half of them sat and listened to their music, the music that they would pick, um, their kind of extreme or angry music. Uh, for 10 minutes or sit in silence for 10 minutes after. Um, and it was really interesting. So for the people who sat in silence, yeah, their negative emotions came down. Yeah, their heart rate came down. They felt pretty relaxed afterwards. But for the people that listened to the music, their negative emotions also came down. So they felt less kind of irritable, less hostile, but their heart rates actually stayed the same. Their heart rates still stayed increased. And their positive emotions also increased, so they actually felt more active and energized, and they actually and they felt more inspired too after listening to their music for ten minutes. So this is a really interesting finding because it kind of suggests that because their heart rates were still elevated, they were actually experiencing their anger. They were mm. actually kind of releasing it. It was actually cathartic for them, and then it was becoming um, something positive. So. In contrast to the the people who sat in silence, where yeah they kind of calmed down and relaxed, the people who got to listen to their music actually were able to process and fully experience their anger, and then that turned into and sort of transformed into something positive. And I think that's that's a really really interesting finding because it mm. it kind of makes us cast a lot less judgment over people who do listen to angry music because no it's not 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 really something that's making them angry making them violent it's actually doing the opposite it's actually helping them turn a negative emotion into something positive Mm. and one thing that actually reminded me of is that 
you can actually, I, th- I think it was Newcastle or somewhere in Sydney, they're actually offering a PhD in heavy metal. And I think the whole thing is now it's something that's so misunderstood and, you know, seen as this aggressive, fearful thing. They're now giving this accessibility to it. So I'm kind of intrigued to know more about that because I realised, you know, when I first heard it, I'm like, sign me up. But it sounds <laughs> it sounds amazing. And obviously more and more people are starting to realise and starting to know there's so much more about it out there. So it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I'm like, I was thinking I should take that PhD up actually. Yeah, I forgot all about it. And the other day I'm like, ooh, maybe I do want to go back to uni. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think it's a really under... Um, really misunderstood and under-understood area and there's so much potential for more research in it because I think it's something that um, has been really heavily oversimplified in the media and actually there's, there's a lot more to it and been a lot more positive um, to it than we, than we know. Mm, agreed. So the emotional regulation, it's interesting because I know when I started to really get more into the heavier genres, so many people are like, oh, how can you listen to it? It's so aggressive and it's so in your face. And initially part of that was in the back of my head. And I thought, I don't know, maybe I thought I was trying to be a rebel and like, I'm still going <laughs> to listen to it. Screw you. But <laughs> as I got more into it, when you do listen to some stuff, especially you come out of it, it's like this cathartic feeling. And all of a sudden, yeah, I'm not necessarily feeling upbeat and jumping around and skipping around to something really, really you know, hardcore, but just that sensation and you process so many emotions in such a short space of time and you come out the other end and you just, yeah, you have this stripped back version of, I guess, how I was feeling before it. Mm, and I think I like that. I think cathartic is a really great word to capture that. Um, and that's something I recognize in myself as well in listening to these kind of heavier, um, heavy genres, because I've had the same reaction from people as well. You know, doesn't it, you know, make you really angry? Doesn't <laughs> it like make you more hostile? And I, no, it doesn't. So it actually, the the kind of feelings that I connect with a catharsis for any anger or hostility, and you come out of it actually feeling um, more powerful or more defiant or more inspired than than you know feeling like you want to go <laughs> punch someone, yeah, torch someone's um, car. <laughs> yeah, I actually come on. Yeah, I've oh, never done okay. that. By the way, that was just a hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you come away feeling like a, a sense of release and a sense of connection, like you've just made some meaning of something and that um, it leaves you feeling really good. Mm. So on that note, in terms of how and why people are drawn to certain genres then, is the emotional side of it a really big driving factor from what you know based on research or is it still a little bit of an unknown of why certain people are so drawn towards specific genres and not other types? Yeah, I'm not, I'm I'm certain that emotion would be one factor because we you know we all have individual differences, we all have different experiences and backgrounds and I think that we're certainly drawn to music that we feel expresses something of ourselves, um connects with something of ourselves. That would, you know, make perfect sense as to why some people are drawn to, you know, more heavier sounding music or um, more easygoing, lighter music or more complex music or just more intense music. Um, I definitely think emotion, you know, the emotions that, you know, we feel within ourselves and who we are as people definitely would be a big, a big factor in that. But I'm sure there's plenty more factors. Mm. Um, lyrical content would be one, um, you know, because if you have difficulty identifying with lyrics, kind of hard to connect with the music a bit versus, you know, lyrics that really, really speak to you. 
So I think that would definitely be a factor as well. But I'm sure there's there's many more. I think there's so much we don't understand yet about it. That's what fascinates me so much. Yeah, the unknown is, it can be frustrating, but it's also amazing because as more and more develops and we find out more and more, it's amazing. But then it is kind of nice to know that there's all this stuff happening in our brains and doing all of this stuff that's making us feel or think or act a certain way. And sometimes it's nice. We need to have control over ourselves, but it's nice that there are these stimulus that can come into it and just, yeah, change our lives a little bit temporarily for the bare minimum. Yeah. And I think that's the appeal of it for some people is sometimes it's nice to just let yourself go in something that you don't fully understand. You don't really know why it feels so good or why it feels so invigorating to be, you know, moving to that beat or dancing or singing along or just listening to something. But it can, that feeling is quite liberating, just letting yourself go in that experience. Mm, Absolutely. And I guess in your day-to-day life, it may be a little bit different to say someone working in a retail shop or someone who's in an office job where there's a lot of music kind of coming and going, given that your day job is dealing with other people, do you use music as something to unwind with or is it something that invigorates you? How do you actually use music given that your day job is dealing with more of the mental health side of things? Oh, I think I use music in multiple ways. And I think regardless of my job, I would probably continue using it you know, no matter what field I was working, I, yeah, I was working in because I feel like it really fills the same role for me no matter what. Um, and I, d- I definitely use it for unwinding. So I just love listening to it. So just, you know, relaxing, listening to it on the way home. It really helps me unwind and disconnect and just, you know, go off into my own world and my own thoughts, you know, sitting on a train or a bus. And I do like, you know, come a weekend or a Friday night going out and seeing live music because I find that such a such a deeper connection to the music than just listening to it at home. There's mm. something really embodied about being out at a gig and, you know, dressing up and seeing friends and just being in the music. So I do that and and I really enjoy singing as well. Me and my husband sort of play a bit of music together. He plays a little bit of, of guitar and I sing along. Uh, we're totally amateur, but we love it. It's it's one of the most enjoyable things we do together. Um, and I find that a real source of emotional expression, I suppose. We sing songs that we really like. We sing different genres. And it's just, a yeah, something cathartic about it as well. Yeah, I love that. And I want to hear this too, by the way. I think a private gig is going to be in order. <laughs> but, oh, no. It's, no? We're <laughs> keeping that quite under eyes or like super, super amateur. Oh, we'll, we'll see. I, I, I reckon you'd be pretty, pretty good. <laughs> uh, one thing I wanted to jump back to, I guess, about what you said about the whole live music thing. I think it's really interesting having that shared musical experience. And that can obviously play into a lot of the, the way your brain works and the way you perceive certain things. And that also brings me into something I wanted to touch on with you as well. The concept, I guess, of not just musical experience, but more of like being in a fandom or idolization. I um mm. I interviewed Lizzie Hale from Hailstorm and I asked her point blank if she thought rock and roll had a future. And the answer was a resounding yes, which made me happy just quietly. <laughs> but she had a pretty great reason. Um, essentially, she was saying that while rock as a genre may ebb and flow with mainstream favor, ultimately, she said, everybody wants to be a rock star, whether you're a country star, rap star, pop star, anything. It's that illustrious musical nirvana that kind of spans genres beyond its namesake. But with that moniker comes a pretty unique reality that falls into some weird grey areas, I guess, between musicology and sociology. And this brings mm. me to an outrageously vast query from, <laughs> from your very, very professional 
opinion. Why is it that we idolise these people clad in leather wielding instruments against a backdrop of dizzying lights? That is a really, really good question. Um, and something that really fascinates me too, because I think it's it's unique to the music industry, but not like there's celebrity fandom as well, which I think crosses over. And I, but I suppose in the the music industry, that it's such a uh, an ingrained, I guess, cliche of the the rock god. From what I, it's a really hard question to answer. I definitely, you know, haven't got the the expertise to answer it fully. But from what I do know about how we relate, kind of psychologically, to each other. There's really something in projecting all of our kind of our fantasies and who we want to be, but, you know, where we might fall short on these, you know, people up in lights. If we go back to sort of, you know, early years, child development, when we're really, really young, our parents fill that role. So our care, you know, whoever our primary caregivers are, they fill that role. They are like, they're like rock gods. They are these, you know, all seeing, all knowing, all powerful creators of our universe, essentially, who, you know, provide care for us and who are amazing, who can do no wrong. Um, I know I even, I remember a time thinking, you know, everything that, you know, your parents say is, is, um, is gospel and, and they know everything and they can't make a mistake. They're just <laughs> these infallible creatures. And that's actually, it's a survival mechanism. It actually benefits our survival as, uh, as kids to think like that, because if we didn't, then, you know, we can't trust our caregivers. So it, it, it's actually a survival mechanism to see our caregivers as, as these idols. And of course, then we grow up and we become more self-sufficient and we realize, you know, all humans are fallible and blah, blah, blah. But I think that idea of idolizing someone and them being this kind of perfect being kind of remains. And I think into adulthood, we like to look to celebrities and people in the, the public eye as these perfect, all, you know, all powerful, amazing beings that, you know, we might one day, you know, become like and and also that if those people respond positively to us, that it actually makes us makes us feel good about ourselves. Mm. So they kind of serve as fantasized mirrors of ourselves, if that makes sense. These these people are so wonderful and so perfect and so amazing. And that if they, you know, there's that classic kind of image of people in the front rows screaming out while the 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 lead guitarist or the singer leans out to touch their hand and it's like being touched by God. <laughs> and I think it's that feeling of this person is so amazing and wonderful and I hold them so high in in my in esteem that if they you know look on me positively if they favor me if they you know look my way touch my hand sign an autograph for me give me a little wink and a smile that speaks volumes about me as a person that must validate how great I am so I think as all of us being um you know we all want to feel accepted and loved and special um, I think having idols can kind of fill that need for us in a, in this kind of roundabout way. Mm. It's fascinating too because I feel music is used as such a form of self-expression and a lot of the belonging and identity is so tied up in other people and specifically the people up on stage as well as the people around you. But it's incredible that, yeah, so much of yourself, especially for the really hardcore fans, can be just so linked to another person. It's wild. It is um, quite astounding when you think about it, but it's also not surprising at the same time because we are social creatures and we are heavily, heavily dependent on our social ties to to survive. 
And so I think those, you know, needing to feel accepted, needing to feel special are part of our, um, yeah, what we need to survive. Um, and then it, it kind of manifests and plays out in this really interesting way where, you know, we want to be part of the in-group and there's this person up there on stage who's leading the, you know, leading the in-group essentially and representing all that we would like to be and we we feel good about ourselves and it makes us feel special to be to be part of that and to be to be seen by them. Mm, definitely. And it's interesting too, I guess, in this day and age now that the lines are a bit blurred, we can, I mentioned this with my first guest, Brenton, like it's changed so much that we can see what a lot of these people are doing on a day-to-day basis. And it's not as unattainable, but there is still that level because there is still that gap and that barrier when they're up on stage or behind the speaker or whatever like that. So yeah, as much as we're not having like beetle mania, it's all still yeah. there. There is so much rabid dedication and obsession. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I wonder what it'll be like in another 10, 15 years, what the next stage of this all will be. Yeah, it really is interesting to see where it will go with technology um, because you're right, technology and the way the you know world is at the moment has really opened up fandom and celebrity, you know, um, connection and celebrity worship to something that it you know, something so different to what it used to be. And we used to just have the poster up on a, on the wall and you'd look at it as you're going off to sleep and imagine what it would be like to meet them. And now we've got Twitter and we've got Instagram stories and you can feel like, you know, part of the, the life of the singers or celebrities or the, um, you know, guitarists that you're a fan of. Really quite amazing. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And of course, so much plays into it in your world in both sides of it. And I guess what's most interesting is that it is constantly evolving. And I guess that's what makes the musical world so interesting as well as many others. It's never boring to say the least, I suppose. No, not at all. Now, obviously we could go into a lot of these concepts at length for hours. We can do that in our personal time. Potentially I might (laughs) tackle you and have more chats, but I guess to, to end more of the formal part of this chat and go into a little bit something a little bit more fun. I've been doing a little lightning round with my guests that I'm calling the sound check sound off. Essentially, I'm just going to ask you a few quick questions and you just need to answer as quickly as you can without overthinking your answers if you are so inclined. Oh God, okay. No, don't be nervous. I say, I've said to everyone without overthinking and then I'm like, you can say, you can take a second go. <laughs> we'll just take two. Okay. Uh, so are we okay? Do we need to get any nervous screaming or crying out? Oh, no, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Okay. Okay. I, I might need to do some quickly. We'll do that later. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So question one, we've touched on fandoms today, so it's fitting to start here. What band did you lose your mind over seeing live? Oh, um, easily Sonata Arctica. Um, they're like a symphonic, uh, Finnish symphonic well, power metal band, and I saw them live for the first time in 20, oh, was it 2010, I think? Um, they came, that was the first trip to Australia. I saw them at the, well, what, what was the hi-fi in um, West End in Brisbane. Uh, sat on the front row, gave them, like I'd made this stupid little like stuffed kangaroo with a little cape with their logo on it and put a little um, mini bottle of vodka in Oh my God, I love that. <laughs> and handed it over at the end of the concert and um, Elias gave me his pick back and yeah, I would just, and then I went, and met them out the back after when they were sort of after the show and they were taking some photos with fans and yeah that was pretty much one of the one of my life highlights really yeah that's pretty pretty beautiful I like that a lot (laughs) okay so we've talked a lot today about emotions and emotional regulation with songs what song never fails to put a smile on your face 
Um, smile on my face. This is going to be a really weird one, really out of left field, but, um, lady hear me tonight by Mojo. I don't even know if you remember it. I do. Oh my God. (laughs) I love this. 2000 maybe. It's just kind of like dancey reggae. Actually, I don't know. Maybe a little bit reggae. Yeah. So it's kind of like dancey song. I remember listening to it when I was on holiday in Fiji at like New Year's and fell in love with it. And it just takes me back there. I'm a bit of nostalgia, like what we were talking about before, but it just, just transports me back there and I'm on a beach and just not a care in the world. And I freaking love it. I've currently got it playing through my head in the background as I speak. I'm having a little groove. I love it. I love it. It's putting a smile on my face too. Um, So to balance the light with the dark, what song do you crank when you're having a totally crap day? Oh, would be something by like a monomer, like Gods of War Arise. That would probably be it. And is that going to make you feel happier or more cranky by the end of it? No, it, it makes me feel so much better by the end. Excellent. That's see, that's Dr. Tanya like McMahon's going, official advice. I feel like you're going through a musical roller coaster back there, cranking like Mojo, and now now I'm on a mark. We're gonna have to go back. Let's go back to Mojo. <laughs> uh, so, as we've mentioned throughout this, obviously you are very musically inclined and have been for a long time. Did you ever consider a career as a musician? No, I no. It was always a hobby for me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I thought about like upping the ante with lessons and things like that to, to you know, maybe go in musicals or, you know, amateur, that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I think, I think it was always going to be a hobby for me. Hmm. And I guess you also mentioned you and your husband have a little nice duo band thing going on at home. If you had to start a band officially, and it can be with him or anyone, what are you naming your band and what style of music are you playing? Um, we'll be called Spider Pig and <laughs> that's the first one. That the best. So you're playing this, you're playing this game correctly. I like it. <laughs> and, um, and we're playing, um, we're playing covers of Disney songs. Oh, I'm into it. Are they yep. straight covers or have we got a little twist to it? No, straight covers. Just yes. no. Actually, yeah, I guess we. Yes, no. Actually, now that I think about it more, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil the amazingness of the Disney song. So we'll just be doing the, you know, the the classic Disney covers. <laughs> I like it. I want to hear it. Um, I thought if we ever start, if we ever started a band together, for those playing along at home, Tanya and I were in a very. Um, let's call it unique musical production about the Titanic in high school. Um, a real lighthearted romp for the kids, that one. Um, but I don't know, maybe we could start our own band for nostalgia's sake, call ourselves the Icebergs or something and hope that our career had a better ending than that musical <laughs> did. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. But we're not wearing, I'm not wearing white pants. Those pants were terrible. <laughs> uh. Or a boiler suit. Oh, although, yeah, let's ne- never say never. Let's put that on a, on a, as a side note, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> now, last but not least, to close out each podcast episode, I'm asking each of my guests to share with me a song or a sound or a musical experience that changed their life, something that heavily impacted you, whether it's professionally or personally, something that still perpetually holds a special place in your sonic heart. That's, I've got to go back to Sonata Arctica there. Definitely the first time I heard the song Don't Say a Word because that was I think that was the first 
um, of their songs that I'd heard and the first of that genre. And I actually remember the time and place that I heard it. I think I was ironing clothes at home <laughs> and just listening to this and going, I just, I just stopped completely and went, Oh my goodness, what is this? And I think I even turned the lights out. That's probably a really bad idea when you're ironing. But, <laughs> I, think, <laughs> but I think I just wanted to enhance the experience I was having because it was just profound. It was, it was just, yeah, life-changing. I'm definitely going to jump on that, but I don't iron, so I'll just turn the lights off and do it half-assed. <laughs> yeah, definitely don't iron in the dark. Excellent <laughs> advice. Good tips for everyone. Well, Tanya slash Dr. McMahon, I should say, I can't thank you enough for your time and expertise. It's always really fascinating to look at music with a kind of different take on things and look at the really in-depth spheres that are in the musical world. And selfishly, it's just awesome to get more time to chat with you. And for those who are so inclined, by the time this episode airs, Tanya will have actually busted out a TED Talk because she's a superstar. Um, so I'm sure everyone can jump online and check that one out. And hopefully we might spy you publicly sharing your vocal skills sometime soon, maybe. <laughs> but in the meantime, thank you so much for your time, Tanya. You are honestly amazing. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. And I'm going to wrap it up there. And that's you off the hook, my lady. Yay, done. Well, that sound can only mean one thing. Yes, that is it for another week on Behind the Soundcheck. Thank you so much for joining me today, whether it was your first time tuning in or you've been here from day one. If you've missed any episodes along the way or you'd like to re-listen to anything at all, you can jump over to the Soundcheck website, which is www.thesoundcheck.org, or you can search behind the Soundcheck in iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or just generally on the interwebs. This podcast wouldn't sound nearly as snazzy without its theme song, which is, of course, Hall of Shame by Osaka Punch. And a huge shout-out to the boys who actually just sold out the zoo last Friday, launching their brand-new single, Drones. So if you haven't heard that one, definitely get on it. And of course, a massive thank you to Tanya for sharing her extensive expertise with us today. Well, that's it for now. I'll catch you next week.